Hey, I just imagine if Jesus was a driver at night, I bet he'd be a really good driver that used his turn signals, checked his blind spots, and was always looking ahead defensively. Now, the real question is, what kind of car would Jesus be driving? I don't know. I don't mm. know. It should be a poll. We should know this. I'll ask him in heaven. Well, well, the old school church joke would be that they just went in one accord. <laughs> do 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 boom. I love that one. Almost 20 years ago, our paths crossed in the sneaker world. And since then, we have been on a professional and personal journey together. We've made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of fun, and even a few wins along the way. Our goal is to share our experiences and insights so you don't have to make some of the same errors that we did. And in addition, we want to help you begin to think about things a little different. So join us as we unpack our unsolicited and sometimes polarizing views on business, faith, and family questions that make you want to unfollow. We are back. It is episode 11 of the Unfollow podcast. And this week, we're going to tackle the topic of leading in the dark. Ooh, sounds deadly. Episode 11, amazing. The real question is, how many of your friends have unfollowed you? Uh, or family <laughs> in real life. And so, no, today's topic, I think, is very timely. Um, leading in the dark. In times of uncertainty, in times when we can't see what's next or we don't know what's ahead of us, um, are there tools, are there principles, are there tactics we can use as leaders of our families, communities, and businesses that can help us navigate uncertain situations? Um, you know, maybe a global pandemic, maybe social unrest, uh, maybe a recession. I mean, all these things, none, none of us had a pandemic playbook. And if you did, um, gosh, I would like to invest in whatever business or stock portfolio you have. But for the rest of us, I think we're all kind of figuring it out. And so I think tonight we're going to talk about, you know, what are those things that we could do so we don't feel like we're having to wing it? Are there things that we can hold on to? Um, you know, I use the analogy of driving at night, right? So driving during the day can be dangerous, um, but driving at night is extra deadly. Um, so there's 60% less traffic on the roads at night, but half of all traffic deaths happen at night. And really because driver error goes up and visibility goes down. And so when you're driving at night, when you're navigating at night, um, the rules of the road don't change, right? The rules of driving don't change, but they adapt. And I think any leader in an organization, when you're leading at a nighttime or driving at dark, I think there is a responsibility to adapt and be flexible with how you lead, not only for the needs of your organization, but also for the needs of your family, right? And I think I want to talk about that and we'll, we'll go through some questions here. But yeah, I think leading in the dark is a gift and a skill set. Um, we're all going to have to flex because who knows what's next in 2020. We're, already, we're in August. Uh, hopefully we can make it to the end of this year with as little collateral damage as possible. But it's been a heck of a year. Yeah, and I know that it's really easy to talk about leading in the dark right now, but when you think back to early parts of your career, is there a moment in hindsight that you can now look back and say, hey, that was a moment that the guy ahead of me was trying to lead in the dark, and maybe he didn't do a good job. Do you have any stories from those times? Yeah, you know, I think of times when I had to wing it or I was a part of a team that had to wing it. You know, I think as a leader in the dark, oftentimes we're a part of larger teams that are also in the dark. And so I'm, I was leading in the dark, but I was also following in the dark. Uh, think about my uh, time at Kate Spade and Liz Claiborne and company in uh, New York 
This is around 2005 to 2007 time frame. And so I had just gotten hired as director of marketing uh, for six different fashion brands uh, in the Liz Claiborne Kate Spade portfolio. So I was big man on campus. I came in thinking I was about to wreck it. I think I was 26 years old, had the director of marketing title, which is, you know, I was probably the youngest uh, at that level in the company at the time. I remember the, my first day on the job. So I walk in, I'm there early, got a corner office in the Empire State Building, my first meeting, I walk in and there's this um, in the outside of the States, people know it's a it's a fashion brand and store called Mex, M-E-X-X. Well, my first meeting was to talk about how we're closing the stores in the U.S. We're uh, laying off the staff. We're cutting the budget. And I had no clue. Like, I think I'm coming into some of these growing, thriving brands and had no clue. And so, A, the guy that brought me in did not tell me like about any of this like catastrophic like information right that like totally changed the trajectory so I was driving at night and didn't know it until I got in the car and so I think what I learned there is you know it wasn't my fault but it's my problem right and so I'd already accepted that role I needed to double down and try to make it work in terms of navigating a thoughtful respectful um, store closing, right? And these are people's jobs, people's livelihoods, but also do what I could to still onboard into those teams and build that organization. So yeah, I'd say, you know, that was not only a uh, organizational crisis of roles and people, but also a financial crisis because the company just wasn't doing well. Now, okay, fast forward 15 years later and we know Liz Claiborne went out of business, you know, Kate Spade acquired what was the company now. So the company itself has been through a big transformation. So now I can look back and see that that was just the blinking dashboard light on a much larger crisis for the company. But yeah, at that time, you know, I was I was leading firmly in the dark uh, and I was a part of a team that, you know, despite our best efforts, there wasn't a whole lot we were going to do uh, to be able to turn around some of the some of the crisis in the organization. So I definitely would say I learned a lot about sticking to it, um, trying to have grit and perseverance in a time when you don't have a lot of control. How do you reflect on that time uh, in your career? You know, because I think from the outsider's perspective to be the marketing director of Kate Spade at Liz Claiborne, Mex, even though a lot of people didn't know it in the U.S., Mex was a pretty big brand internationally. It's kind of like a banana republic, if you will, in Europe, um, with like more of a Euro flair to it, I guess. Um, how did it feel to all of a sudden arrive into this position that you were like, man, I can't wait till I'm the marketing director. And you arrive into this position at a young age at 26, and then it's not what you thought it would be. How did that make you feel? I think, you know, you go through the, you know, stages of call it, you know, situational depression, right? You're like, oh, this like denial, this anger of like, well, why is it like this? And then I think for me, um, there is this uh, this fortuitous kind of, you know, hey, I'm going to make the most of it. And so I tend to be a dig in your heels. Hey, we're about to make this happen anyway. So I can always kind of look on the other side and see visualize and build a vision for what it it could be or should be. Um, So sometimes that's great, um, but sometimes that's a challenge. I think part of what I learned, though, is, you know, the implications of being unprepared or underprepared. And for me, this was a great proving ground because everybody in their career is going to go through a transition, a team, a project where what you thought coming in 
and what you got when you landed were just different for whatever circumstances. We're all going to have those bumps. And so for me, the benefit is that I got to have that so early in my career. Now, if I was talking to 26 year old Adrian, would, I, would he was he happy? No, like I'm pissed. Like I'm like, oh, wait, what the heck? Um, but now I can look back and say, oh, yeah, when we you know, when COVID sh- uh, hit the Patron team and we were, uh, you know, making decisions on how do we fund and how do we flex and how do, what do we do? We're talking about how do we support industries and bartenders. Now I've got a little bit of grit because I've seen how I've, I've had to structure and augment. So I'd say, uh, there's no way to prepare, uh, for a pandemic, just like, you know, a fire drill doesn't prepare you to get out of a house fire, but at least it gives you a little bit of muscle memory so that something can kick in. So I think it gave me at least a, a foundation of, um, you know, some hard won, hard fought lessons in leadership that I think could be applicable even going forward in my career. One of the things that people tend to do in the moment that you were in, right, is, hey, I've had these uh, classes on marketing. I've had some early experience in marketing. Um, the guy ahead of me gave me some ideas what to do, but you know, you really had a bag of tools and maybe you didn't have all the right tools. Um, what were new tools that you added to your bag after going through bankruptcy and store closing, um, and landing in a job that didn't turn out to be exactly what you thought it was going to be? I'd sum it up now and I wouldn't have said it then, but now as I look back over, you know, a decade plus later, I could summarize it as um, leadership agility, right? And I think in school, we focus on IQ, right? Which is myself, my, my smarts, my intelligence. And then when we get out, a lot of our leadership development is focused on uh, business intelligence, right? So it's data, it's analytics, it's reporting, decision-making, you know, 18-month program at Harvard where it's, hey, here's how to do corporate accounting and finance, right? So business intelligence. I think... The two missing cues, right, are emotional intelligence, capability of interacting with people and feeling what they're feeling. But that next step, I think, as a leader who is leading in the dark is cultural intelligence, reading the signs, um, reading the people and reading the trends and climate of an organization in a way where you can add value in the unspoken conversations. So the conversations that aren't happening at the meeting, they're happening at the water cooler. Right. So they're bringing in new management and leadership. So I think what I learned from that experience was leadership agility, being that there are multiple levels at work at any given time in any organization. And I think people who I've seen are able to navigate that effectively without um, hurting their career, or hurting themselves personally, because there are a lot of people they've emerged from a crisis or a, a nighttime leadership session. But I mean, you broke, you're bankrupt morally, spiritually, physically, your family, like you make you survive, but you're not necessarily in a position to thrive. And I've been there. I've survived some things that I didn't necessarily thrive through. I think the difference in leading in the dark is that if you do it right, it creates an opportunity for you to get better, stronger, faster, uh, and be just a more empathetic and culturally relevant leader if you can do it right. So I think even if I rephrase, rephrase the theme tonight, it's not just getting through the dark. Like I think it's getting through it and making it a competitive advantage by building a capability in your team, which is, I think it's the T word, trust. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. 
Well, and so my favorite quote from uh, a really strong leader, his name is Craig Groeschel. He says that people don't follow people who have the right answers. They follow people that they trust. I love that quote from him because what it means is everything that you just said. It means developing trust with your team, whether you're leading them or you're part of that team, is the most important thing because we're not all going to have the right answers. And you're most certainly not going to have the right answers in a moment like right now, right? You're just going to have to do the next right thing. And if you've created levels of trust within your team, they will lean into whatever decision that you believe is the right direction for you guys. And they also believe that you'll take responsibility if it's not the right direction. And I think that's one of the things in hindsight that I think the most or the least of people, if that makes sense. So guys that I followed, women that I followed, that took responsibility for decisions that they made that weren't necessarily the right one, but they, they owned it, right? You give them a lot more grace, um, and you give them grace in the future. It's the people that never own up to those mistakes in leadership, and they pretend almost like they didn't happen. They don't have that hard conversation. That's when the trust really crumbles, and you're like, I'm not going to go back through that situation or a situation like that again with that type of person. Yeah, I mean, trust is, I mean, it is the currency of organizational health, you know, if uh, it's the it's the least measurable, but I think the most impactful element of any team, you know, when trust goes up, it becomes a dividend. Like it, decisions are faster, cost goes down, speed goes up because we're able. We trust each other. Like it's like a, a winning team. It's like seeing, you know, a, a winning basketball or football team. They just know. It. They don't even have to talk. They just know the plays, right? Um, I don't know if you're a New England uh, Patriots fan or not. I mean, you see those guys play when they're at their prime and you just know everybody knows what they're doing. Now, when trust goes down, it becomes a tax. So now speed goes down and decision making time goes up. And now it's like, well, let's have that other meeting. Oh, let's have that next check in. You know, actually, let's put it off for another week so we can have somebody else look at it. Hey, let's bring in a consulting firm to double check your math. Hey, let's do this. Hey, let's look at our competitors. And that's what's happening across the board in so many organizations Trust has become a tax because it's it's lacking. And I think what you identified for Craig Rochelle, which is great, I think humans are wired to be trust um, uh, detectors, right? So think about cavemen. You had to know, all right, like, can I trust this person? Or are they going to hit me over the head and take, you know, and, you know, take my meat, right? And so I think our minds are have this built-in kind of trust indicator of, can I trust you? I think for some reason in business at times, especially the leaders, we think that our title gives us this automatic trespass and it doesn't. Your title just gives you authority and decision making at best, at best. But trust still has to be earned. Trust still has to be maintained and nurtured. And I think we we forget that people are always watching. Right. People are all those little things like what do you do? What do you say? How do you say it? Um, do you care about me? I think is a measure of trust as well. So no, I absolutely agree. I think trust uh, during nighttime uh, driving and nighttime leadership is so, so critical. So let me ask you this question. You've been the low man on the totem pole and now you're the high man on the totem pole. Where do you feel like trust is the, the greatest or the least? So for example, do you feel like that there's more trust between an entry level person and senior leadership? Or do you feel like there's more trust between senior leadership and maybe the director level that's underneath them that they have a lot of interaction on a day to day? 
Ooh, that's a tricky question. I'd say, uh, I don't know if I'm the high man on the totem pole. I'm just uh, at the level where I can look back and see some of my lack of trust or where I didn't take the time to earn trust. And so probably the second half of that Liz Claiborne, Kate Spade conversation is, yeah, I had the challenge of navigating a crisis with the organization, but I didn't take the time to build the trust I needed because uh, I thought my credentials and my resume had earned it for me. And I think part of, um, I think if I reframe your question, it would be this, like, what are the indicators that we're building trust in a team or organization? And and are there levels at, in the hierarchy or matrix where trust is easier to foster or trust is harder? I'd say this, and this is an opinion of one, trust is easier or more frictionless frictionless uh, at probably the mid to lower management level because I think even though you're coming from different perspectives, you're not as ingrained into the status quo. So it's probably less about level, more about tenure in an organization maybe. And I, I think there's this common bond. Uh, research shows that the higher you go in an organization, so as you go up in uh, status, leadership hierarchy, you actually get removed from the stimulation that gave you the intelligence to be a good leader. And so a great example would be as you move up, you move into an echo chamber where people are agreeing with you. Nobody's calling you on your stuff. People are just more likely to kiss your butt when you're a leader. And it's just the nature of, of culture. And so now you don't have the access to the challenge or the information or the stimulus you need to make a good decision, right? And so the marketer that I was 20 years ago, and when, you know, 20 years ago, we, you know, was when me and Daryl were making these, you know, uh, questionably quality, uh, you know, shoe uh, videos at, at Foot Action, but I tr- we had trust, right? And and I think we had built trust within our organization. Um, I'd say as you get higher, though, I think trust becomes harder to maintain because people. Um, are trying to please you. And that's where I think the sign of trust is not a lack of, uh, the mark of trust is not an absence of conflict. The mark of trust is the presence of healthy conflict. It's being able to have that tough conversation and then still be okay because we focus the feedback on the project, not the person. And I think leading in the dark, you just don't have a whole lot of time to play politics and go back and forth. I mean, you know, I think about our COVID response as a Patron organization or Bacardi, I mean, we had weeks to for- formulate and mobilize, you know, a million dollar donation to bartenders and restaurant owners to get into communities and try to help out with food, uh, with relief packages so people could feed their family, so restaurant grants could stay open. I mean, th- these were real lives impacted. We didn't have time to like, uh, you know, d- uh, divide and conquer or argue or debate. And I think that can only happen, though, in a team where you trust that uh, somebody's not only capable, but that their character is going to be there to, to hold up their end of the bargain. And that, that that's a sign of health. OK, so I want to grab on to that word, hold up your end of the bargain, that phrase, hold up your end of the bargain, because this is a pro tip. So pro tip, no matter what level you are in the organization, whether you, you're the new guy and you're on the bottom or you're the boss and you're trying to maintain trust with your team, the biggest thing you got to do is show up. 
You just got to keep showing up. So if you say, hey, I'm going to be here at this time or we're going to do this thing at this time, you have got to show up. And I would say that that also transitions into your personal life. So if you're a young person out there and you're listening to this podcast and you're in your early 20s and you're starting your career, what I would tell you is, is at work, you got to keep showing up when you say you're going to show up. And in life, you've got to keep showing up when you say you're going to show up. And I know I always joke about this, that I want that on my tombstone. But the reason I want that on my tombstone is because what it says about me is you could trust me, right? Like if I told you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to figure out a way to do that. And I think so when we talk about building trust with people, all we're really talking about is consistently showing up. And if you consistently show up in a way that is real, I can I consistently show up in a way that's honest. Uh, you consistently show up in a way that says, "Hey, I've I've got our best interest as a family, as a team in mind." People will trust you. But what happens is, is when we text somebody before we're supposed to show up for a dinner, hey, sorry, something came up, can't make it, or we blow off a coffee, or. Uh, we don't show up to work when we're when we agreed to show up to work. Now I know in today's world a lot of us are working remote, right? So what that means is is like, did you bail on a conference call? Did you bail on a Zoom meeting that you said you would be at? You know, um, can I can I trust you to do your work remotely when I can't trust you in person to show up when you're supposed to? And so I think right now in this season where we have to be remote so often, trust becomes even more important. So what I I would just encourage you, whether it's in your professional or personal life, just keep showing up. Don't text me last minute and say like, Hey, I, I've changed my mind or I've changed my plans. Don't and don't do the same thing at work. And listen, here's the deal: you're not always going to have um, you're going to have good intentions, but you may things may come up. I get that sometimes. You get into a car wreck or you know somebody gets sick or whatever, and those can be exceptions. But when you see that as a constant pattern, man, it just chips away at trust. And I think the most important thing that you can do, personal, professional, is just show up. Man, you give me a flashback. A, a man. B, flashback to uh, one of my college professors, Florida A&M, uh, Dr. Wilson. He used to say, you know, uh, always be on time, of course, um, but know the difference between a reason and an excuse. That's what that makes me think of. Like, always honor and know the difference between a reason and an excuse. And I think what you describe is that, I mean, there are reasons. Things pop up. Things happen. You know, pandemics or whatever it is, but... We know when we're using excuses. We know when we're using um, our get out of jail free card. We know when we're using manipulation or we're motivated by our own um, self-protection or self-preservation. And I think that's that's when you erode trust. And that's one of those things that you, you, you can't get back as easily as you built it. So I absolutely agree, man. I think question for you, dun, 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 is this. I know as you've navigated orgs and you know different changes different companies um can you give what you don't have so can you give a team answers when you don't have it can you give a team clarity when you don't have it how do you give your team um either work or church or whatever it is when like like they're asking you questions that you're asking yourself for yourself so how do you instill um call it trust or how do you instill hope how do you instill uh, comfort. How do you instill clarity mm-hmm. when you don't have the answers personally for yourself? 
Well, I think number one is, is you don't always have to have the answer and that's okay. But back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, this is not a moment where you fake it till you make it. Right. This is a this is a moment where you have to be transparent, honest. Um, you do have to to lead with conviction, but you also have to be honest. And you might have to say, "I don't know the answer to this." Right. Like, I don't know the right answer to this, and I need your help. I think that phrase right there, "I need your help," is big at soliciting your team's participation in anything. Um, I need your help, and I believe we can do this together, right? Those are two really simple, kind of cheesy, but important phrases. I need your help. I believe we can do this together. And so from there, you launch into asking questions instead of giving answers. So there's something about to happen inside of an organization. Maybe it's even at home. Like, let's even get this back to, like, we're in the car with our families, right? And we're trying to lead this small team of three people who don't really want to participate. And, um, you know, my, my wife, Johanna, and I, maybe we're having conflict about what the right decision is to make. Instead of acting like I know what I'm doing, humble myself and ask her what her opinion is or, hey, what do you see here that maybe I'm missing? You know, Joe and I have this funny story from early in our marriage, even before kids, we were on the river canoeing with some friends. And what you learn is, is that when you're canoeing with a partner is that the person in the front, their job is to be the guide. And the person in the back, their job is to steer. But if the person in the front does not tell them what is coming up and the person in the back doesn't listen to what they have to say, you guys will run aground very easily. And so we learned this the hard way. And I will tell you, this is early in our marriage, so it was such a good metaphor for us. But I had to learn to listen to what Joe said that she saw coming up. Hey, there's a rock on your left. Go right. Okay, boom, got it. And I just had to start trusting that, right? I had to trust her vision, what she was seeing, because she's far enough ahead of me and has a better view of what's to happen than I do. And so my job, if I'm going to steer the ship really well, is I've got to listen. And so I think the same applies to your teams, right? So you say, hey, okay, we're in this meeting together. I don't have all the right answers, but I believe that we can make it through it. I need your help. What do you see out there? And and listen to the feedback. And I will also tell you that that buys you time. So when you start asking questions and you start hearing and you start to like filter those responses, it's buying you time as well to start to make what you said earlier, right? Those emotional decisions based on the culture of the organization, right? Based on the temperature of the organization where you guys are at. Are they really afraid? Are they really excited, right? Like, where do I need to step in? And then you do this really well is that you empower these guys inside of the levels of the organization that they're in to make their own decisions, right? Rather than you trying to make every single decision for them, you may just say, hey, okay, great. What I hear is this and always say, hey, what I hear is this and repeat that back and then empower them to make their own decisions and the team is moving in a general direction together. You don't have to micromanage each individual decision. You just say, hey, we're gonna this is the path that I hear. I'm gonna pick that path. And that's your job as a leader, right? Is to help pick that final path after you've listened and then empower them at the level that each of them is at to make those decisions to get towards that final destination together. Yeah, that's so good. I, I think something you hit on that really resonated for me is just that opportunity to be authentic. And I think it's so cliche, it's so overused, 
but it's so underdone, especially in business where we think we have to have a facade of having all the answers. You know, um, I reflect on the difference between management and leadership. And I think reflexively, oftentimes what happens when we're leading in the dark is we rely too heavily on our past or our strengths and we don't uh, decipher, discern new information or we just we, we just don't get into leadership mode. It's so easy um, when I think COVID is just a great example for us organizationally. And we've had uh, some instances before, right? We're going through, you know, a, a financial difficulty at a, a former, you know, I was at Radio Shack. So, so I've, I've, I've got a string of stories and bankruptcies and all kind of really crazy reorgs, right? Where I've been the last guy at a company before. We're literally like, I'm closing down the company. And I think um, what happens, though, is you reflexively want to go into management mode. You want to centralize it, all the decisions. You want to manage your way out of it, even if you're supposed to be leading. And I think the mark of trust and true leadership is the ability to take a step back, trust your team, um, and not jump into fix it mode. And, you know, I, I think such a good example and, you know, I think if you're in business and you're not a believer, right, you're not a Christian, go with me. Trust me on this one. I'd say study Jesus as um, I hope you would study him as a object of your faith. Um, but even if you just study Jesus as a business case study, you would find so many nuggets of how he led during crisis or times of uncertainty. And so some things he did, right? So Jesus always uses turn signals. He was always able to like explain, to stop and like, oh yeah, well, here's why. He gave rationale. Like, so for people who wanted to hear, he was always willing to educate and equip and engage their hearts. Another thing he did, he always checked blind spots. Like he was always challenging assumptions, uh, always challenging um, biases and stereotypes. Like, well, why do you believe it? And he spoke in so many paradoxes, like in parables that like confounded people. Like, well, why are you talking like that? But he always challenged, and but he checked your blind spots for you. And I think last thing he did was he was a defensive driver. And that's where I think I get tripped up sometimes is I think as I look at Jesus examples, he was always like watching what was new and next. I lost count and I never read the Bible like this to see how many times people had tried to kill stone, throw Jesus off a cliff, seize him. I mean, it's literally at least 15 times in the gospel that people are actively trying to kill Jesus. And he's just you know, it wasn't time yet. So he's able. So I think there's something to always reading the signs. And when you're in a crisis mode, you're leading in the dark. It could be so hard to look ahead. And so you want to focus on what's right in front of you. You want to focus on the management, the tools, the tactics, the day to day. That's where you got to trust your team to do that. You've got to be the person saying, right, what happens after this pandemic? How is my... um category changing? How's our business evolving? Like, is our customer going to change from how they purchase? Is their frequency changing? What are the patterns? Is e-commerce going to increase for us? Is our distribution model going to be different? Because now plants are shutting down or plants are reopening. Like, those are the things that your team won't be thinking about as much and that you have to. And so I think one of the things you have to do as a leader is always be following, you know, use your turn signals, check your blind spots, but always I think Jesus example of being a defensive driver, like always looking out for what's ahead. And that's the part that I think um, only a leader can do well. And you've got to empower your team to do their job so you can be looking next quarter. So, yeah, if you're not looking at, hey, what happens next calendar year? 
uh, once, you know, maybe a vaccine is available for, uh, for you know, for a global pandemic or you're thinking, hey, how does if this recession last two, three years? How does that change your business forecast? Those are things we should all be asking ourselves, whether we're running a for profit business, non for profit community. Those are things that you know we might have the answer. But I think we do have responsibility to start engaging and getting some of those some of those um, some of those data points just because it, it's going to impact us. So let me add to that. I think what you're saying is also important in partnerships. Um, so in my other world, I have a lot of partnerships. Um, I've had good partnerships. I've had bad partnerships. Um, and one of the things that I've found has been the, the keys to a successful partnership is knowing that there are going to be moments of uncertainty. And so defining the goal, saying like, hey, this is the direction that we went ahead, um, and this is our end goal, and understanding that the space between where you're at today and that end goal is going to be laden with rocky, tough, hard decisions that you're going to have to make. You're going to have to pour money, time, resources, sweat, um, commitment. You're going to have to put all of that into the project. I think having partners that understand that is so important. So like setting that as the precedent from day one and saying, hey, if we want this project to be worth $1 million, we're going to have to do these things, and it's also going to cost us this along the way. Are you committed to doing that? Um, because what happens is is that things change. Like you said, like the lights go off all of a sudden, and it's dark, and we're in a global pandemic, and how am I supposed to make sure that I still get to that final destination? And so as you choose partners or you form new partnerships, make sure that that's a part of the initial conversation because everybody's all excited about a new idea. Everybody's all excited about a new business. Um, and nobody really wants to have the hard conversation of what do we do when this costs me money, when I have to put in another $20,000, when I have to go uh, after hours and work on this thing, um, are you willing to do that? And so I think um, being willing to have those hard conversations up front about uncertainty and about commitment um, are so important to a successful project or a successful partnership. Um, one of my favorite books along those lines um, is by a guy named Jocko Willink. Now, I know you guys are already laughing out there because you guys already know that I love Jocko. Um, and if you're not a Jocko fan, he may be too hardcore for some of you guys. I'm sorry. It's not for you. But Jocko is one of those guys who um, was a Navy SEAL commander. Um, he led the Battle of Ramadi. Um, this dude looks like a, a physical monster, um, but he is also a really, really great leader. And one of his most successful books um, is called uh, Discipline equals freedom. Uh, it's a really simple book. It breaks down basically some of his battles um, in the Middle East, and then he pulls out a business principle that is kind of like a, a metaphor or the equivalent of that in your business world. So it's Discipline Equals Freedom by Jocko Willink, um, and he's got this principle called good. And this principle of good is really simple. If you look up Jocko Willink good video, you'll see him uh, verbally talk through this as well. But it's when something happens that was not planned, when something happens that was a challenge, he just says good. Because that good in his mind is a mental shift to say, okay, this is an opportunity to do something else. This is an opportunity to train more. This is an opportunity to get better. This is an opportunity uh, to work on something that I didn't even know that I needed to work on. Um, but it's called good. And you have to look it up. I, I absolutely love it. I think it's really good.
That's so good. <laughs> I love that. I think uh, what you describe reminds me of just the difference of procedural leadership versus transformational. And so for me, I've spent the last 12 years doing roles that haven't existed. And so I've spent a whole lot of time, uh, more than most, I'd say. So I'm not necessarily a better leader. I just have more experience in transformational situations than maybe your average kind of person at, at, at a larger corporation. And I think what I found is that so many of our principles are uh, based, you know, or foundationally from the factory floor. So procedural. I know, I know information. It's a proven skill, proven system. It's predictable time, like, and that's factory work. And the good thing is, if your business is unaffected, you're driving during the daytime, you don't need to change a lot. I mean, you need to plan and prepare ahead, but like, you're good. Like, don't don't mess with the factory system. If it's working, you know what you need, it's predictable, go. Challenge is, the same rules you use on a factory don't work in a transformational leadership situation. And the best analogy there is if I'm walking into a, walking into somebody's kitchen, I don't know what they even like to eat, and I've been challenged to make them a five-course meal. I don't know what they like, I don't know what they have in their kitchen. I don't know what they have in their fridge. And so it's, it requires a different mindset. It's a transformation that you have to like iterate. So you embrace surprises. You actually seek bad feedback. I seek like negative feedback so I know how to get better. Um, so that'd be the equivalent of like giving them something and letting them taste it. And then they like, yeah, I don't like it. That's good. So you take stimulus and uh, you take learning. You, you embrace like when Customers don't like something. Um, and that's a very different approach, but that's how you build transformational leadership or projects is you have to embrace those things because you don't have a roadmap. And I, I think um, one good book I really love, uh, Multipliers, is a book by Liz Wiseman. Um, and the multiplier, as you can tell, is a leadership that multiplies the talent and ability and smarts of everyone in the room. Challenge is we don't have enough multipliers in most of our companies. If we're honest, most um, leaders we've encountered, or many, I'd say, are diminishers. It doesn't mean they're bad people. They're actually probably good leaders and good people, but they're always the smartest person in the room. They talk the most. They own the decision. They own the outcome to the point where they aren't creating capability for their team. And that's, that's what happens when you're leading in the dark. Well, that same diminisher who hasn't let the team uh, be able to test and learn and iterate. Now, they're the only person that has the ability and their ability alone isn't um, isn't sufficient to drive the company back through through the dark, right, through the nighttime journey. And so I love the book Multipliers because she uses research to really talk about how you can become a multiplier and how even if you've been a diminisher, you've been an old school legacy leader and you've been successful, right? A lot of people who are successful in business are you know, they're they're ingrained uh, habits where I think to be a multiplier though is is what you describe. You got to be able to embrace like those things that are bad or challenging. Man, it's good. It's good. Like I, yeah. I can learn from this. I love that. Yeah, in CrossFit we have a phrase called "embrace the suck." Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, hey, it sucks. Yeah. Right. But I've got to learn to embrace that because I know it is actually making me better. Do you have some principles for transformational leadership that you have learned or have applied? Yeah. You know, I think um, a lot of the things for me that have been foundational, I'll show three uh, here, just pain creates space. Right. So when you're when you're in a position of pain. Pain is oftentimes the primary driver of creativity, the primary driver 
of um, new thinking and innovation. Um, if you think about oftentimes uh, our pains or our troubles create the new idea yeah. to fix something. So pain creates space. So embrace that opportunity and constraints. When you have less budget, less people, yeah. less demand, less materials, whatever your business is, pain creates space. Uh, two, never create a principle um, out of someone else's experience. Um so sometimes things are different for different people. So even this podcast, like, don't take our word as gospel. Like, don't create a, a principle out of our experiences. Take what you need, but uh, allow um, your situation to be fluid, to be dynamic. And, you know, so I, th- I think at times you're, you're going to pick and choose what you need to, to put together mm. um, an answer or a, a, ro- yeah. a, a, a game plan or a roadmap to get through leading in the dark. But, yeah, don't, don't, don't make a principle out of everyone else's experiences there, everything isn't an absolute. And I think uh, the last piece is just uh, trust and forgiveness, right? So I think those are two sides to the same coin is trust, build a high trust company and team, but also forgiveness is the mm. antidote of when you lose trust. So I think we have to have both in a good marriage, in a good partnership, and in a good business, you got to have that forgiveness gene. And that was, for me, for, was hard because I think with agencies or with team members, bosses, it didn't matter, yeah. managers, people that reported to me, you know, sometimes you get to the point where like the forgiveness you would give or expect in your own personal yeah. life, you're not giving it to your coworker or your partner in business. So forgiveness. And, you know, it, it's, it sounds weird to say forgiveness when you're talking about business, but it's so, so critical. So I think those three things are pieces of the puzzle where if you can just start to institute those, at least give you a, a fighting chance for how you're navigating through the dark and, and learning forward with your team. Let's repeat those three transformational leadership changes one more time in case somebody missed that. So number one, you said pain creates space. Yeah, pain creates space, so embrace it. Um, number two, never make a principle out of someone else's experience. Right, so be creative, take what you need, but you know don't accept it as absolutes. And uh, three is, you know, I think you honor and you value trust and forgiveness. So trust that people are doing what's right and build a healthy culture, but you know something's going to go wrong. So have forgiveness. I think that grace and that forgiveness are equal um, sides of the same coin and necessary because you're going to have to ask for forgiveness if you're doing something different or new or innovative or driving in the dark. And you're also going to have to give forgiveness because um, someone's going to miss the expectation. I, and I think you got to have that to be healthy over the long term. Man, those are really good. Thank you. Like I wrote those down for myself. <laughs> I didn't even charge you this time. I appreciate that. Um, are there any other tools you use in a moment of uncertainty? Oh man. You know what? Um, don't despise wise counsel. Uh, I don't know. I don't care how smart you think you are. Somebody who has been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, call them, email them. Most of the time, I found that I can either ask a question or get a point of view uh, from someone who's either a little further along or a little, maybe even just more comfortable. Like, you know, when I have a, a real estate deal or, you know, we were renovating our house was about a year and a half ago. Call Daryl and Joe. I mean, they've, you know, they've bought 50 houses and they've done, I don't know. 50 or more renovations. So I, I don't have experience in that. I, I'm not as comfortable with it. And so he, you could give me an objective, non-emotional, fact-based 
um, insight that would save me months or thousands of dollars. Right. And so, yeah, I think the, the ability just to like, you know, get get wisdom, get like have somebody speak into you, uh, being able to, to bring that counsel to, to your decisions. Well, I think back to your point of never create a principle from somebody else's experience. You can listen to their experience and gain wisdom from it and understand yeah. the general direction, right? And then be flexible, but you at least have a better idea of what's ahead of you. Back to that uh, canoe analogy where Joe was in the front kind of giving me a heads up of what's to come. Yeah, that's good. Did, did you guys yeah. end up making it safely through that journey? We did. We did get stuck on some rocks, though, because I didn't listen too well. I'm not surprised. Yeah, me either. Um, Okay, so let me go back to a moment in your life where you're waiting. So you're in the dark and you're waiting. Um, Do you remember what that felt like? And do you have any experience or insights for us on, like, what to do in that waiting Man, waiting hurts. I hate waiting. I'm not good at it. I'm not very patient. Um, I can have words of wisdom in hindsight, you know, after you get through the wait and you're, oh, it all turned out fine. But I think when you're in the middle of a season when you're waiting, either it's a, a delay, a denial, or it's something that just isn't working out. You know, I think one thing I would go back to, um, and so if you're a, a believer, you know, the story in the Bible, Second Kings uh, 17, Elijah, I go back to all the time. Um, and the, I won't go through the story, but I'll just you can reference the story. But here's the principle. When you can't be useful, be patient. And when you can't be used, be still. And you will have times in your life when things are just held up, like it's a pandemic, or a job situation, you're in between roles or projects, and like you just want to get to the next thing, and you, you just learn to just be patient and be still. Um, and it's not something I do well at all. So, I, and 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 at the risk of sounding uh, hypocritical, saying "Hey, be patient, be still," I think uh, what I've learned is I think that ability to uh, take the focus off myself. I think helps a lot. So that's where I think leading in the dark is that ability to, Hey, when I'm going through, I'm wrestling in a season where I don't have the answer. Uh, maybe I'm on E like we talked about this, uh, personally, you know, uh, I've talked with Daryl before, like seasons when you're just out of it, you're just like, I just don't have it. I don't have it to give. Just being able to be still like there, 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 there are cycles. Right. And I think there's opportunities to learn even when you're not actively moving forward. I think there's opportunities just to listen, be still, take it a day at a time. Let me tell you one of the the best experiences I've had lately. So I was at my brother's camp. So my youngest brother runs an outdoor camp. It's called Camp Eagle. It's here in Virginia. And if you can imagine the very best camp as a child, like it's this camp. It has a lake. It has big creeks. It has like all of the obstacle courses and slides. It is so much fun. And so in this season, they're not doing overnight camps. So we're able to sneak up there on the weekends and take Ella and Easton and just let them play so it's it's awesome and so they have a blob and if you've never seen a blob before it's basically like a giant inflatable sitting in the water and it's basic physics right so one person jumps in in the air onto the blob and one person on the other end of the blob gets launched into the water it's so much fun so 
what happens though is that if you're the guy on the end of the blob waiting to be launched, you're sitting there in just complete anticipation of the launch. You're in the waiting, right? And you never know when the guy behind you is going to jump and you're going to be launched. And sometimes you have clear signs. Sometimes the guy behind you says, in three, two, one. Sometimes the guy behind you just sneaks out onto the platform and catapults you into the air like you never know. And so you've got to be ready because if you are not ready on the end of that blob when you get launched, dude, (laughs) it, it is a bad belly buster for you if you are not ready for that, right? And so I think that there's a funny but weird analogy in that in the waiting, right? So if you're out on the end of that blob right now at work or in life, just just be ready, right? There's going to be sometimes there's very clear signs. Hey, this thing's coming. I can hear it. I can see it. I know it's about to happen. I'm ready for launch. But sometimes like you don't know when that launch is going to happen. And so I think just always be ready in season and out of season. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I mean, just yeah, staying aware, staying positive. Um, and we talked about this, even the Ugly Faith um, podcast last week. It was just like sometimes it's the story you tell yourself. Right. You can sit there at the end of that blob and pout and complain. Or you can sit there in that blob and take a look at, hey, you know what? Enjoy the view. Enjoy that time. So I think that story we tell ourselves is so critical. We've talked about where we were at. We've talked about some book recommendations. Where are you headed now? I mean, you've got leadership decisions that you're making every day in the dark right now. Um, so where are you at and how are you making those decisions? Yeah, I think for me, it's really a about leaning into this new playbook that we've developed. You know, it's leading with empathy, um, having uh, compassion for your team. And I think, uh, you know, it sounds so cliched, but it really is purpose-based leadership, but also that shows up in your business and in your brand. You know, I, I think if you asked me three, four months ago, I'd be in a very different state from a leadership perspective. Now, having seen, I've seen the fruit of being able to invest and trust in your team, of uh, investing in them as people, not as people with positions or titles or roles or projects, but as people. Like, I've seen that. And I I think, you know, uh, that ability to just uh, continue that journey um, and really, like, be flexible, be adaptive. I won't have the answer. Um, But also let go of the tools that no longer serve me. Um, one of the books I recommend is called Range. It's by a guy named uh, David Epstein. And it's a book about why generalists, you know, uh, can um, succeed in a very specialized world. So a generalist, a person that has multiple skill sets, call it master of many. Um, uh, well, you know, uh, you know, but not really a specialist. And I think if you think about some of the stories um, that resonated with me is he tells the story of these smoke jumpers. These are firefighters that literally jump out of planes and fight forest fighter forest fires like they jump out of planes. So obviously like well-trained, brave people. And the amount of times uh, it's tragic when they die um, fighting forest fighters, a lot of them die with their tools still in their hand. Right. So these are men and women highly trained that die in fires because they didn't let go of the saw or they didn't let go of the oxygen tank or they didn't let go of the hammer. Um, he also gives an example of Navy of, of Navy um, fighters and uh, people in the armed forces who are you know, abandoning ship but don't uh, take off their steel toe boots, right? And so they puncture the raft or they sink. 
And he paints this picture of it's not a lack of capability. It's our identity is so tied to our tool that we can't drop it. And I think COVID has taught me uh, and what I'm leading towards in the future is there are some tools that I'm just going to let go. I'm going to let go of some of the command and control, call it legacy leadership that I would have done where, you know, it's kind of top down. It, it no longer serves me. It no longer serves my team and actually you just don't need it. It's so much time and effort. And so I'm going to embrace uh, new tools and tactics of how do you lead with empathy, trust and building those things. Those things I was doing anyway, but I think COVID has accelerated that for our team. And I think it, it, it continues to bear fruit in ways. Uh, so even when I'm questioned, I get questioned you know, all the time on how's Patron doing, how's the team doing, our business performance and I can say we're, we're doing great, you know, for, for, for where we're at and what we've invested, but also the team is growing and, and, and doing a, a very good job. And so I think that that's for me what's next, man. It's learning to just diversify, dropping the tools that no longer serve me, focusing on, on the team and, and just people. What are your final, final thoughts? Leading in the dark is hard. Uh, it's something that we typically don't wish on ourselves. So I think, you know, we, um, we aren't used to it. It's not a, a skill most of us have, uh, but it's a skill we're going to increasingly need. So, you know, I think I'd wrap up by just encouraging people to continue to um, iterate, seek surprises, look for the things that challenge you and, 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 and things that press you as a team. You know, remember that, you know, leading in the dark uh, can be painful. It can be hurtful. But it doesn't have to be lonely if you let your team come with you, bring good people along with you. Uh, you know, check on some of those leadership principles we said before, but ultimately, like, you know, taking responsibility and accountability for what you can. But in, in the day, building a team where you can trust one another, I think that's the biggest key to take away from from this conversation. What about you? What, what's your what's your final thoughts from the Oracle that is Mr. Calfee? Uh, well, first of all, if you're going to sit on the end of the blob, enjoy <laughs> it. <laughs> I the worst the worst thing is is to not enjoy the waiting and sometimes it's really hard like if we're just honest like sometimes the waiting sucks because you feel like hey I'm not hearing from God things aren't moving as fast as I want them to um, maybe things aren't progressing in your mind right so but keep in mind like you're still at the end of the blob like you're still going to ex- get the experience launch at some point you know you're going to get to fly um but just enjoy it for a moment. Like sit there and and enjoy it in that moment. Back to your point of like be still for a second. Um, I think my favorite things of this conversation tonight were the three bu- the bullet points that you gave on what it takes for transformational change. You know that pain creates space. That never make a principle out of somebody else's experience, and that to make sure that trust and forgiveness are a part of your transformational change plan. Like those are amazing. Like. I'm, I feel like I owe you money for those tonight. Oh, it's okay. Okay. You, you, your mother already paid me, so it's it's probably fine. <laughs> Dude, we've known each other for 20 years, and your mama jokes never get old. Nope. Nope, they don't. All right, man. Until episode 12. Hey, guys. This is DC, and this was the Unfollow Podcast. We hope you like what you heard today. And if you didn't, that's okay. There's 100,000 other podcasts you can choose to subscribe to. But if you like this one, do us a favor and subscribe or share it with a friend. 